0: Episode 137 of The Bowery Boys, New York, and the world of radio.
2: Hey, it's The Bowery Boys.
0: Hey.
1: The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com.
2: Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And if we've never had a radio voice on before, we will don them now. Did you say, Greg, if we've (laughs) never had a radio voice? Because that, I'm sorry, that was an old-time radio show. Old, yes, because that's what we're doing today, the old-time golden age of radio. We're going to look at another industry that New York has made a major contribution in, of course. We've talked about the birth of film. We've talked about the beginnings of electricity. Today, we're taking a trip to the world of radio, from the creation all the way to well, World War II, I think.
0: And it's funny because we're going to be covering not just the development of it as a technology, but also talking about it as a new medium and the content that was heard across it.
2: Now, unlike our film show, this won't be a straight-through history because by the nature of radio itself, it developed in many places uh, throughout the United States in the 20s and 30s. And once it sort of got properly introduced into American culture... A lot of cities participated in the growth and development of making it the prime entertainment source for Americans. We'll not just be talking about the people, but many landmarks of New York play critical roles here to the history of radio, from the Lower East Side to several boroughs and even the grandest skyscraper in New York City.
0: So join us as we tune in to New
1: York and the world of radio. The National Broadcasting Company presents Radio City Playhouse, Attraction One. Radio City Playhouse is a theater of the air that has been built to an extraordinarily simple design. In radio drama, there is no substitute for a fine story expertly told. So, if a script meets the highest standards of excellence, it may come from any writer, anywhere. So long as the performance is truly inspired, it may be given by any artist without regard to name or fame. We hope you'll listen each week to our new series, and if you feel like writing to us about our plays... We will deeply appreciate your comments.
0: Wow, the drama and the majesty
2: <laughs> just never ceases to amaze me on these little promos uh, that you find, great. Uh, when you can't communicate visually, you have to give it all into the ears, and so it has Again. to have a blazing orchestra behind you. Harps. Now, to preface... Our little history here of New York and the world of radio. This will not be a technical show. I have to be honest, I just barely understand how the, the rudimentary ways in which a radio actually works. Well, luckily, Greg, I brought along an audience tube right here <laughs> that I expect you to explain to me. Oh, I, I could try. We will be talking mostly about AM radio or Amplitude modulation, uh, basically transmitting information based upon amplified waves, which are the taller waves and the smaller waves. The very end of the show, we'll discuss the other kind of radio, which is frequency modulation. Basically, that's where all the cool music's played. I'm kidding. (laughs) That's the stuff where it's a greater number of waves during a period of time. And yes, there's cool jazz also.
0: Why don't we turn our dials back a mm-hmm. little before there
2: was radio, as we
0: know it today. There before was, there were dials. Right. There was wireless telegraphy, or or rather, there was a desire to to send telegraphs wirelessly. Now, the telegraph, as we've talked about before, was developed in the 1830s as a practical commercial device. And it was already in itself, of course, a revolution. You could send messages around the world through these wires, but therein lied its limitation and its problem as well. You were sending messages through wires. As soon as the telegraph got off the ground and had become this big industry, there were no shortage of inventors who were trying to replicate it without the wires. These experiments were taking place in Europe and the United States. Even Edison got in on this. Another inventor who was in on this game uh, is somebody we've already talked about in a recent podcast, oh. a certain
2: Nikola Tesla. Right. Now, you know, again, this is part of the technical part, which I don't quite understand, but part mm. of their electromagnetic waves, right. meaning that a small portion of electricity is actually being transmitted. I believe. And so these people who were, of course, involved with the early days of electricity would not be surprising that they would look into this.
0: Right, because Tesla wanted to send electricity through the air. He wanted to send it across the oceans and even through the earth. But enough of that. (laughs) That didn't work but he was also interested in seeing if he could send messages without wires in 1889 he opened a lab at 175 grand street
2: he would actually have several labs all over new york yeah he worked in new york for many years i can't believe that by the way because that's in like what today's little italy so it must have been a very very crowded place to have you know, a laboratory to run all these different kinds of experiments. It's extraordinary. However, Greg, speaking of Little Italy, it took an Italian inventor,
0: Marconi, to really make progress here on radio. He was born in
2: 1874 in Bologna. Wait, may I ask what his first name is? Guglielmo. Guglielmo. Guglielmo, I I think. I just have it written... I, I, well, no, I mean we were like Googly just, Elmo. We were we were having a debate before on how to say his name. So I think it's Guglielmo, Guglielmo no. Marconi. You, st-
0: <laughs> I st- I st- you stick to the Italian pronunciation, and you, you do French. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So he was born in Bologna, studied electricity. He was experimenting with radio uh, in the 1890s, working off details that were published in magazines in 1894. He improved on the work that was already out there, and he started sending his own wireless messages from home. He was, like, ringing bells in his home laboratory from across the room. To the untrained ear, this is almost like magic. It it was magic. Mm-hmm. And in 1897, he succeeded in sending the first messages out over the open seas, which was a very big deal. Two years later in 1899, he sailed to the U.S. because he was invited by the New York Herald newspaper to transmit messages during the America's Cup race. He was aboard the SS Ponce and sending messages, wireless messages.
2: I think it's a very interesting application that they, I mean, they immediately went, of course, to, to the sea because this, this would be very important for the, the first decade of the 20- 20th century right but also that they would just do it on this sort of lavish like yacht competition right. off of sandy hook sandy hook new jersey into the new york harbor herewith i need to inject
0: something mm-hmm. which was up to this point what everybody was talking about was using radio technology to replicate what was happening with the telegraph so the telegraph was sending messages from one point to another. It was a single message. It was basically a private message from one person to another through a cable. All of this technology was being dreamed up and improved upon for the purpose of similarly sending one message from one point to another to a receiver. So it's it's quite a bit different, and we'll get to that later, but it's different from the idea that we have today
2: of radio of sending from one to many. Much more about that later. To underscore that, um, one of Marconi's chief electricians actually said that if New York could actually build a version of the Eiffel Tower, then there would be two cities that would be able to speak to each other. But implicit in that statement is the fact that it's like, oh, here's one spot talking to the other spot right. and just having one single conversation between each other. And the, the real application here that people were excited about was the possibility of replicating the telephone. Again,
0: wirelessly having a conversation with another person.
2: So talking about cell phone usage before talking about anything else in a way right Right. and not
0: to mention that when when we say that marconi was aboard the ss Ponce in sandy hook new jersey he was sending morse code across uh, as a message he wasn't talking into a microphone and being heard by an audience Mm. on the other side so that's how he was relaying details of the voyage So it was Marconi then, in New York, who was setting up and establishing his Marconi American business. And he did so in 1901. He set up a station in South Wellfleet, Massachusetts, and was able to send a message between President Theodore Roosevelt down in D.C. to King Edward VII of England in 1902. Well,
2: by 1903, they were even using it on cruise vessels, like the really nice ones, the Cunard uh, vessels that would... Leave Chelsea Piers, would leave New York at the time, and then there would be wirelessly transmitted things like stock quotes or news of the day, information, you know, for the wealthy passengers, of course. This would be a premium service, of course. Of
0: course. Now, all of this wireless boat talk, takes a very somber and sad turn in 1912, a hundred years ago, really next month from when we are recording this, with the sinking of the SS Titanic, the ship which hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic on April 15, 1912. It was sailing from Southampton to the U.S. More than 1,500 people would die in this disaster. However, many more would have perished had the Titanic not been equipped with radio engineers Radio engineers by the way, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, who were employees of the Marconi International Marine Communication Company. Mm-hmm. So they weren't actually working for the ship. No, they were working for him and he they were trained by him, right? Right. It was these two engineers who sent off the distress signal that was received on shore and allowed for their rescue.
2: I believe that only one of of the two operators survived, correct?
0: Yes. When the SS Carpathia rescued the ship's passengers, they only rescued Harold Bride. He was the only operator to survive that, and when he was brought into New York Harbor... Marconi himself went onto the ship to escort him off. It was because of this titanic disaster and the role that radio played in saving lives that it became much more standard and even law to equip these giant vessels with wireless technology which, in effect, made Marconi, of course, a very rich man.
2: Now, of course, the radio technology hasn't been lying dormant this past decade. Between its invention here in the Titanic, who's picking it up as as a hobby are hundreds of uh, you know young enthusiasts, young mm. what we would later call, of course, ham radio operators. Uh, many of them young men, in fact. They would even be marketed to specifically, in 1905, one could go to Macy's or Gimbel's and they could pick up a a kit from the Electro-Importing Company, which had their offices down on Fulton Street near the World Trade Center site. And I mention that because that site's going to come up again a little bit later in the podcast and a wonderful moment of serendipity here. The Electro-Importing Company would provide these kits so people could literally, in their own homes, listen to and send various messages. And we're talking dee dee de- dee de- Yes. De- de- Obviously this was a little messy and it caused a lot of interference for any radio signals that were at, you know, legitimate ones that were trying to happen. Because there was very little government regulation on who could use which wavelengths. In fact, in nineteen twelve was one of the first major acts by the Federal Government, the Radio Act of nineteen twelve specified that Radio frequencies had to be licensed from the government. Now, anyone could get a license. It was like a fishing or a hunting license. Now, before I jump into our next individual, I do want to say that we're going to be talking about a lot of men, a lot of powerful men in the world of radio. But to be fair, there were also a lot of women who were involved who were amateur ham radio operators at this time, and who else? if you will, oh, and were also employed as wireless operators. New York's very first wireless operator was a woman named Anna Nevins. By 1912, she was working in a station atop the Waldorf Astoria, which was back then was at 34th and Fifth Avenue. Right, the old one. I mention Anna because her old boss, someone who actually trained her. Um figures in largely into the story. is a man named Lee DeForest, a pivotal figure in radio, but also kind of controversial here. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of controversial. It's hard to really like to sort out what is a opinion because there's a lot of uh, very passionate people who you know who support him and a lot of the detractors and of several his of the men
0: we're going to talk about even had their biographies commissioned and authorized right so, he
2: did also i saw yes. it i saw it with my own eyes i almost used it as a source and then realized this is kind of a press release sometimes it's hard
0: to see deforest yeah. from the <laughs>
2: Mr. DeForest was born in Iowa in eighteen seventy-three. He did go to school in Yale, um, where he was voted, quote, the ugliest and freshest man in his class. Which uh they which- seem to contradict each other. <laughs> they do. I-, I can't believe someone would like have that kind of a competition in a school, but it's okay because he would actually have a succession of different wives. He would be v- quite successful in his in his romances. In college, became enamored of this idea of a wireless technology. He eventually moved to, to New York, and after years of ex- experimentation, he was even at that particular yacht race with a less successful device, let's just say. In 1906... He invented the audion tube, which was an early version of the triode, which is something that's used in a radio today. It's basically a vacuum that magnifies a radio signal. It makes it possible to have a portable receiver because you can pick things up that are quite a distance away.
0: And it's my understanding as well that the audion tube made it possible to transmit the human
2: voice. That's very important because DeForest would quickly patent a lot of his discoveries. The problem is with him is he, it's hard to call him a true inventor. He did, in fact, invent these things. He just didn't know what always made them work, mm-hmm. which is kind of the problem, especially when you know, you're know you forced to go to, say, court and, and ex- defend, defend something. Um, so as a result, throughout most of his career, um, there would be a string of lawsuits. But DeForest was in New York by 1907. He had a laboratory on 19th Street and 4th Avenue, today's Park Avenue South, where he had a lot of successful radio experiments with this voice transmittal. So these were some of the very first broadcasts of voices. And may I ask what they were? There's a couple really spectacular examples of sources that he used for voices. For instance, he called up his mother-in-law. At this time, his mother-in-law, because he had many wives, so he had many (laughs) mother-in-laws. And this time, this mother-in-law was a, a woman named Harriet Stanton Blatch, who happened to be the daughter of Elizabeth Katie Stanton, one of the great... Feminists. Yes, of the day. And she herself, uh, Ms. Blatch, was a staunch suffragist herself, a leading figure in the cause. Um, her statements on the women's rights to vote, and they're considered the first political broadcast in human history, but, of course, I'm not sure if anyone was really listening. Also, from the same laboratory, he also recorded a singer, a very handsome Swedish soprano by the name of... <laughs> Um, Eugenia Farrar Uh, so it was like the first live concert performance ever on Radio Waves and she sang the song I Love You Truly and this was in 1907 yes and and who was hearing this (laughs) Keep in mind, there are people listening for Morse code. And those are... Ah, they, yes.
0: If they're in the right so they're frequency... they're turning their dials. Yes. Our, so our friend Anna Nevins up at the Waldorf Astoria might just be tuning her she, dial yeah, and she, she might a, stumble upon... She was a
2: couple years later, but technically, yes. That's the kind of people gotcha. who might have been listening. And in fact, Miss Ferrar found an audience of one over at the Brooklyn Navy Yards. There was an operator there on the USS Dolphin that had just happened to be docked. He heard the sounds... Not knowing where they were coming from, you know, not realizing that they were doing this experiment. And he said it was like the voice of an angel. I mean, think mm, of that quite shocking. honestly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what her her voice sounds like particularly, but it would be a quite a heavenly sound to hear like human tones from this wireless device.
0: I'm curious still, though, if that's 1907, because I did read that in 1906, there are reports of a Canadian inventor who
2: was conducting his own experiments and broadcasting voices as well. Yes, Fessenden. Exactly. Yeah, again, we're bleeding a lot into, like, who came up with this first who was the original person who did this, and it really is a nuanced distinction uh, in that, all of these different They kept cases. a lot of them in court. Well, in 1909, DeForest announced even a grander plan, and he, he announced it at Francis Tavern. There was a dinner, and he, he announced that he had modernized radio transmission, and a few months later, the following year in 1910, he attached a receiver to the roof of the Metropolitan Opera, Broadway and 39th Street, and from there broadcast an entire operetta by the tenor Enrico Caruso from wow. the top of the Metropolitan Opera. That's incredible. Top talent. A few years later, DeForest tried again. And keep in mind that all of this time that we're passing. It's lawsuits. It's trying to get these inventions funded. It's trying to get attention for them. To get away from some of the interference, by this time there's a lot more radio going on in Manhattan, he goes to a cheaper location in the Highbridge neighborhood of the Bronx on Sedgwick Avenue. From there, he did a variety of different broadcasts, including the very first election results. There was a presidential election that year, November of 1916, between Charles Evan Hughes and Herbert Hoover, so he did a live broadcast of the election results. Unfortunately, he announced Hughes was the winner of the presidential election and then signed off. Eventually, DeForest would move out to Hollywood, and so he would fade from the story here in terms of radio. Now, that was the election of
0: 1916, but if we rewind a little bit to 1912, if you'll allow me to, yeah. we have a young Columbia student named Edwin Howard Armstrong. He lived uh, up in Yonkers, and he would commute down to Columbia on a red motorcycle. Do you know he
2: was born and raised in Chelsea? Like, the neighborhood of Chelsea. Really? Yeah. I mean, he's a he's a New York born and bred, here. and then grew up, I guess, up in
0: Yonkers. Yeah. He was, among other things, kind of a daredevil into heights, and also into radio, and really trying to figure out this Audion tube. Clearly, De Forest didn't
2: understand his own tube. Well, th- what makes him a little bit more of a, a dashing figure in the history of radio here is that he seemed to actually get all yeah. of the inventions that he was working on. Like he had a depth of knowledge. And so this young student,
0: Armstrong, is working on this Audion tube when he finally figures it out in 1912. He didn't just figure out how it worked, but he figured out how the audience tube could receive and transmit signals at the same time. He achieved the regeneration and, most importantly, the amplification of sound. So Armstrong is an incredibly important person in the history of radio. That first discovery took place in his own house up in Yonkers. He built a giant antenna off the roof of the house. It would get higher and higher and be up there. He'd always have antennas at his disposal. Mm -hmm. In 1914, he took this technology to the Marconi Company uh, to license it, and he met with a man named David Sarnoff.
2: A fairly important name in broadcast, I believe, Mr. Sarnoff. Yes, David was born in Belarus in
0: 1891 and immigrated to the U.S. in 1900 when he was nine years old. He was classic rags-to-riches story, very Horatio Alger. Do you know, Greg,
2: that he attended classes at the Educational Alliance? Uh right so I well that's building today is named for him. That building is on East Broadway and I used to live two blocks away from that building and I used to walk by that name and like always had a mystery behind him. But right. now Now you get yes. I took painting classes. There. Yes. I'm still on their website. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, he was was a resident of the Lower East Side for many years and really was quite poor. And before and after school, he was selling
0: Yiddish newspapers to make money. He employed his brother, eventually even his father. He was an entrepreneurial spirit. In 1906... He got an office job at Marconi. He was first doing errands, um, but he was practicing sending telegraphs. He was really into it. He had to put up with a lot, being a Jewish boy in an otherwise unfriendly environment. He soon introduced himself to Marconi, to the great man, and became his personal assistant which, according to some reports, meant that he had to tend to his many mistresses scattered oh, about town. But a little he, scandal. But he did grow within the company, and he set up wireless stations on ships and in department stores, because as you'll get to in a second here, department stores were getting into the wireless and into the radio game. Mm-hmm. So he was assigned to the Wanamaker's department store, Broadway and 10th Street, setting up their in-house radio station and coming back to the titanic on that fateful day in 1912 he was working at marconi it's still a, it's a little bit unclear today to what capacity he was working some
2: even dispute that he worked at all because- yeah i mean there's a it's a it's a classic or some parts of it are classic urban legend although i do feel right. like he was involved in the story maybe he has just There's a certain mythology around it now where it seems like he worked for three days straight without, you know, he was
0: the (laughs) only person working the telegraph and he was communicating the names of the people who were on the ship and getting off the ship and this sort of. It's a kind of Paul Bunyan esque tall tale type story, but there
2: is a kernel truth to it.
0: When Sarnoff was 21, he moved into the Marconi offices, which were in the Woolworth building downtown. And according to, again, sort of Sarnoff legend, in 1916, he wrote a very prophetic memo to his bosses, in which he envisioned a plan to sell radios to American families, according to his plan, in order to bring music into their homes. He said, quote, design it as a simple radio box with speakers, sell it for $75, and 100,000 of them could be sold. So a pipe dream at this particular
2: time. he right. no was going to that? buy these right.
0: boxes? What he was talking about here was completely different from what his employer, Marconi, was doing. Marconi was still, as we've said, working on point-to-point single communication. Mm-hmm. And he's saying we could make a box and bring music into their houses, bring entertainment into the houses. There were so many questions around this plan that His bosses did what most bosses would do. They completely ignored his memo. Chucked the memo in the garbage. Now, some historians even doubt that this memo even existed. It's sort of hard to tell. Others say that what was actually happening here was that the Marconi company was a bit distracted because we're now in World War One, and wireless technology is incredibly important and that radio equipment is being sold. They've got bigger fish to fry than thinking about taking, you know, bringing music into people's homes. Well, the
2: government is even, because the radio is so key, so critical to communication during the war, obviously, that they even dismantled a lot of these private, small radio stations. Almost 3,000 stations were shut down. And during the war, they actually
0: waived all of the patent claims on radio technology. So too bad to all these inventors. I mean, many of these inventors went into the war, like mm-hmm. Armstrong. Yes. Sarnoff, by the way, tried to get into the war, but was rejected because he was Jewish. So he stayed back in New York to develop Marconi USA. After the war, however, in 1919, the government realized that this foreign corporation, Marconi Company, which was British owned, even though Marconi was Italian, mm-hmm. was a bit of a liability. Here we have a giant communications company that here, we had just been in a world war that puts the U.S. in a vulnerable position. If
2: you put it like that, that sounds perfectly reasonable, actually.
0: So, with government pressure, a group of companies came together to buy out Marconi. The U.S. government actually worked together with General Electric, Westinghouse, United Fruit Company, and AT&T to purchase American Marconi and rebrand it as a new American company, and David Sarnoff would become that company's general manager. And that company... Was named the Radio Corporation of America,
2: otherwise known as RCA. RCA of course. By the way, you said the United Fruit Company it was one of the five organizations that were brought together. That might be a strange partner to bring in, right. but in fact, um, this was a South American company that distributed bananas and other fruit from and, and had a lot of boats. And so it actually gotten into oh. the radio game quite early. So it's actually not that surprising. They actually did have a lot of power at this time in the wireless technology. And when we, if we want to talk about
0: monopolies, when this whole thing was done... GE and Westinghouse would have a monopoly on radio production and AT&T had a monopoly on telephones because that's why AT&T was in on this Mm -hmm. too. They were thinking about the telephone aspect of this. This would remain in effect until 1930 when the U.S. Justice Department would actually force Westinghouse and GE to divest of their ownership uh, in RCA.
2: So we talked earlier about Armstrong. How was he involved with Sarnoff?
0: Well, so remember that he had approached Sarnoff and actually sold his technology to Sarnoff. Mm -hmm. Uh, During the war, Armstrong served and made a pretty big discovery. He discovered the super heterodyne receiver.
2: Sounds naughty.
0: Well, it it had a very practical application. It would make reception much clearer. Remember before, he achieved amplification, and now he was helping to achieve clarity.
2: In reception. I mean, it all seems now like it's getting to a point where it's going to only be used for entertainment. But at the time, no one was even thinking that. Right. Well, of course, Sarnoff saw the
0: potential in this and snatched it up for RCA, making Armstrong the largest investor in RCA and very rich. It, and it also made RCA the leader in radio. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, Greg, because, again, we have very little that's actually on the air, aside from many of these amateurs, until 1920, when the first professional station went on the air, KDKA in Pittsburgh. It would be 2 years later in 1922 when New York would get its first station WEAF which was operated by AT&T Western
2: Electric. Now the big myth behind WEAF is that its call letters stood for water, earth, air, fire, the four elements. That's a little bit of a, another urban legend that we're Not bringing I up like here, it. but it's it so was a, it was very popular that that was the what was referred to.
0: It's so elemental. That same year, they would broadcast their first commercial. WEAF actually put out a sort of 10-minute infomercial.
2: What was a casual commercial? Because no one really, you know, they didn't have that succinctness of like the 15, 30 seconds today, right? It was more of just like a story told about something. A
0: new housing development in Jackson Heights, Queens. Oh, really?
2: That's what it was about. (laughs) Four years
0: later in 1926, the station would be purchased by RCA and then folded into its new network, which we'll get to in a few minutes.
2: So what were these early radio stations playing at the when they very when they started at the very beginning? Like what kind of content did they have? It was hit or miss and mostly miss. Because <laughs> yeah. most of the time these
0: stations weren't on the air, mm-hmm. as opposed to today when a station I think is obliged to be on the air at all times or have something on their frequency, in those first years, stations would come on when they had something to say or something to transmit. And then turn off, right. Right.
2: And they would sometimes share frequency with many other stations. Exactly. And people would just put on
0: an hour of musical programming or they would say a speech by Dr. Goldberg. A lot of what was being played was records.
2: Well, I mean, as we know, RCA would obviously get very famously into the music industry, into the phonograph records, into the Victrola, as would many of these radio companies eventually. The 1920s is an incredibly important decade in American history for so many reasons. I bet people forget the fact that this is the era of radio. This is the era when radio was a booming industry. It basically went from nothing to the most important entertainment source for Americans by the end of the decade. Even in like 1921, it was used in mayoral races. It was uh, used in presidential races. And by that point,
0: Variety had declared in a headline that radio was sweeping the country with a
2: million radio sets in use. Yeah, in in New York, uh, they claimed that 100,000 people had a radio. So finally, there were people really tuning in. It was called the gold rush of the air. Although there was like a finite amount of spectrum, everyone was scrambling to get a piece of this pie. In 1923, the Commerce Department created the bands that we actually have today, the 550 to 1500 kilocycles, which I guess is pretty much the modern AM bandwidth Mm -hmm. today. So once that was created, like... Everyone can get their own radio station. The customers themselves, I mean, how did they get radios? And in New York City, they most likely ran down to what was called Radio Row. Now, do you remember the area that I talked about with the Electro Importing Company on Fulton Street near the World Trade Center site? Well, around that same area at Cortland and Greenwich Street were just a row of places that just sold radios. I mean, this was a huge, thriving industry. This was a major appliance for people's houses it was more
0: than a piece of furniture. It was a way to tune in to the entire country.
2: And Sarnoff had been prophetic. Exactly. You know, he was one of the you know first major companies to get on board here with providing content. But then literally hundreds of different local channels popped up to broadcast whatever they felt like broadcasting at the time. Filling the bandwidth in New York with dozens of stations for a variety of different purposes. For instance, as you had recalled earlier... Department stores, it was an excellent opportunity to promote your own items. Wanamakers had theirs, which they would sell their organs and pianos on the radio WOR um, was the original station for a Newark department store named Bambergers they were eventually in 1926 they would move from the department store to a swanky digs in Times Square but I wanted to specifically mention Gimbel's department store which had their own radio station in 1924 because they had the most spectacular opening broadcast of perhaps any radio station I would even say even to this day Do tell. they had a lineup of stars, including George Gershwin, Eddie Cantor. There was an appearance by the cartoonist Rube Goldberg wow. was on there. He was, I, I don't know what, he was drawing? The, you heard his pen scratching? I have no idea. Um, the Gimbals, WGBS, get that, GBS Gimbals, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they moved out to Astoria in 1926 and they were there for many years broadcasting from Astoria, Queens. The station, not the store. The station, yes. Eventually, this station would be bought by William Randolph Hearst and it would join his international news service. So just put a W in front of that, and what do you get? W I N S, 1010 Wins, which still broadcasts today. So the- you also had amusement parks. The Starlight Amusement Park in the Bronx had their own radio station. WBNX. Churches had their own radio stations, like WLWL, the official station of the Catholic Church of St. Paul the Apostle on West 59th Street. A laugh riot. A very popular place for radio stations was hotels. Uh, the very first one was the WMCA, which broadcast from the McAlpern Hotel in Herald Square. They were, in fact, the very first hotel to ever broadcast radio in 1920, featuring the beautiful voice of Luisa Tetrazzini uh, from <laughs> their lobby. And since then, they, they stayed on radio for most of the 1920s. Um, one more station I feel like I do need to talk about in 1924 was WNYC. This, of course, could be its own podcast. And I think it should be. WNYC, of course, is the public radio station even to this day. Did you know that the very first quiz, radio quiz show, appeared on WNYC? It debuted in 1926 and was called The Current Events Bee. Oh. I almost feel like I want to call them up and say, I think Tom and I want to host The Current Events Bee. Can we have a a revival, please? By 1927, there were 51 radio stations within a 50-mile radius of Columbus Circle. So just, that's like a lot of crazy um, interference. A lot of these stations were novelty stations and eventually joined the national networks. So let me get to this for just a second. You had two key radio stations for the national networks so that became sort of the affiliate stations. The first was WJz which was a Westinghouse owned station it was originally broadcast in Newark and then came over to New York it made its home at a concert hall on 42nd Street so WJz and then WEAF which we've already talked about right, right? which so we which talked
0: you, about as New York's first
2: radio station right because I don't want to we're throwing around a lot of abbreviations here yes. but let's simplify it to this it's WJZ and WEAF. So the Radio Corporation of America by the mid-1920s is buying up stations because they want to create a network of programming that could be shared across the country. In 1926, they call that collection of radio stations, that network, they call it the National Broadcasting Company. NBC, bum, bum. exactly, yes. And uh, they linked 22 stations at that time, and the opening broadcast for NBC on the November 15th of 1926 featured performances by Will Rogers, Mary Garden, and the comedy trio Webernfields. Fields. Ah. Now, WJZ and WEAF, which I just... Mentioned, those would be the two key anchor stations. WEAF would be called the NBC Red Network and would have the mainstream big budget shows, which could charge high ad rates. The other one was a smaller station, so it was called NBC Blue. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's like it's weird because we think of red
0: public access station.
2: Well, it's it's more like a smaller stations, like cheaper programming, if you will. It's weird because we call red and blue different more politically charged things today. Not to jump ahead here, but I just this gives me chills for some reason to hear this. In 1939, the federal government told RCA they had to split these companies off separately. So NBC blue. So NBC red and NBC blue. NBC Blue then had to become an entire separate entity and then was bought by the American Broadcasting Company and became ABC. (sighs) So, ABC is a child of NBC during chills, this particular chills purpose. all around. <laughs> Another federal act here, the Radio Act of 1927, um, they would create what is basically a version of the Federal Communication Commission. A lot of the modern rules and regulations that we live with with radio today were invented here. It also killed off a lot of these smaller stations who were, quote, clogging up the airwaves. Under this national framework was the blossoming of all this national programming, and basically it ushered in the era of what we call, and what we are about to talk about, the golden age of radio. For the first time, people across the country could tune into something and listen at the same time. It's an incredible concept if you think about it. Because of these networks. Mm. Everyone could read maybe perhaps the same newspaper Mm. or the same book, but this kind of like truly live entertainment never had happened up until this point. There were
0: stations that were powerful enough in New York or in Pittsburgh or in Chicago to broadcast and reach a a pretty big swath of the country, but that was a single station and it might happen in the middle of the night if it was clear out and whatever but this is a totally different thing this was primetime programming during the day and all of these stations linked up together in a
2: coordinated way, now many of these new radio programs that were introduced by Nbc weren 't actually NBC shows themselves. It was time that they was rented off to sponsors, so they were radio shows that were made around a product so for instance, you have the Ever Ready House, which was a show sponsored by the battery maxwell house 's showboat. Fleischman's Yeast Hour, uh, which recorded in Times Square. It's growing on me. (laughs) There was so much bleeding here of sort of like advertisement into programming. There was a program in 1930 that was a fortune teller who was on air, and her name was Evangeline Adams, and so in her, like she would, her prognostications to some of her listeners, she would incorporate some of the products that were, of course, you know, oh. sponsoring her in the show, naturally. I should add before I really jump in here that, of course, there's a major competitor to the NBC stations, and it was the Columbia Broadcasting System, which um, was headed in the late 1920s and for decades after by the icon of broadcasting, William Paley. So between the two NBCs, the NBC Blue and the NBC Red, and the Columbia Broadcasting System, they brought most of these national programs to people all over America using their affiliate stations throughout the different states. And NBC Blue would become ABC. So there we
0: have our three major networks Mm -hmm. already set up by the end of the 20s. In
2: radio. TV is but a butt in the mother's eye, you know. It's interesting the kinds of entertainment that's, that happens now. I mean, a lot of it seems very strange to us today. One of the first big radio stars in the 1920s was Samuel Rotherfeld, our old friend Roxy, oh, right. who, would eventually, um, who would eventually open the Radio City Music Hall. He would, have, he would have his own show for much of the 1920s. Rudy Valley was the first radio heartthrob, and he was discovered at the Hotel Pennsylvania. In 1935, uh, the most popular female star in America was the operatic voice of Jessica Dragonette. Mm. The Palmolive Beauty
1: Box Theater, starring Jessica Dragonette with Al Goodman's Orchestra, presented each Wednesday night by the makers of Palmolive Soap. Tonight, the story of the captivating young Hungarian countess, who scorned the love of dukes, yet gave her heart to her servants. Jessica Dragonette in the Countess Maritza. Save gypsies, love gypsies, love what you make. We're gypsies, one and all.
2: Fanny Bryce, who you may recall as being an old star of the Ziegfeld Follies of course. Uh, just 20 years earlier, got a kind of second wind in her career um, when she made a very popular radio show called Baby Snooks, where she was a, uh, basically a large baby character (laughs) and a comedic tone of voice i mean a lot of these things are just not like they don't seem entertaining to us and may i just mention by the way that the biggest radio show of the 1930s was broadcast out of chicago was amos and andy which of course certainly would not translate today i mean it's although it took place in harlem it did take place in harlem it is amazing that a lot of black entertainers like were on the radio, but they were on the music side. Like Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong all made their debuts in the late 1920s, but you still had these awful stereotypes being trafficked around in the most popular radio show of the 1930s. In the 30s,
0: though, we hit a little snag called the Great Depression, <laughs> or really yes. at the end of the 20s, and you would think that with the Depression coming on and people getting rid of their cars and losing their homes that they would also be losing their radios.
2: But I think we've we've learned that when people are at their most depressed, sometimes they actually need the greatest distraction.
0: Or a means to connect to the rest of the country, Mm -hmm. which they had suddenly found in the radio. And... People liked it. They liked getting news. They liked getting operas. They liked hearing
2: music from Carnegie Hall and they liked from the f- Metropolitan right. Opera. They liked feeling connected to people who were across the country. This was like, again, like this incredible idea of being connected to people based on something that seems trivial, like a talking mannequin puppet, like Charlie McCarthy. But it just meant that you had something else in common. There were also political uses to the radio. You've mentioned theological
0: uses. Politically, it could be very important. In 1933, just after being sworn in as president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt closed down the the banks to stave off a bank panic. A crisis, yeah. A crisis. And he took to the radio on March 12th, 1933, to explain his actions. Radio is seen in this context as having really helped Save the country from getting further into this financial panic. So, Roosevelt here used radio as a tool
2: to communicate with millions of Americans at the same time. And a, like an, an immediate united purpose. But radio could also cause chaos. Now, I think you may be going towards the studios of CBS here, which yes, were located okay. at 485 Madison.
0: And in that building on October 30th of 1938, an episode of the CBS program Mercury Theater of the Air, directed and performed by a radio theater group uh, led by Orson Welles, performed a 55-minute show without commercials, notably, which told the story of an invasion from some other world and set off a sort of panic. Now, what's notable about this infamous episode, which we call The War of the Worlds, is that it was performed because it was 55 minutes. The ads were up front, or at the end. The show was done without any interruption.
2: They went versimilitude here. So,
0: Right. right. There was no break. There was no chance for people to step outside of the performance and understand that it was just a performance. Of course, they said so at the beginning of the show, but then it would be 55 minutes until there would be another voice telling them to calm down and that this had just been a radio drama. And two-thirds of this show was done as a mock newscast.
1: We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. ladies and gentlemen... Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Ah, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, Now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side studying the object while the captain and two policemen advanced with something in their hands. There, there. I can see it now. It's a white hatchet tied to a pole. Flag of truce. But those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror that leaps right at the advancing men. Strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole caught up by the woods, the fire, the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles are spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about twenty yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill.
2: To the credit of Wells and his theatrical troupe here, I mean, it's so convincing. It's creepy to listen it's to. scary. I, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, like, I obviously wasn't alive for this, but I obviously was obsessed. But I was obsessed with War of the Worlds, and it's still, I think it still has a resonance today. The funny thing is, is that the Mercury Theater was brought in because a lot of the radio stations thought that they needed to class up the joint a little bit because a lot of the entertainment that they were providing was seen as being a little bit degenerative. So little did they know what they were bringing into the house here with the Mercury Theater. Well, it would,
0: of course, cause panic and outrage later because some people were only tuning in halfway through. They were just catching a bit of the show, and there were some people who only heard, you know, some of the newscast at the beginning of the show, and they, they panicked, and they went off. And it was all broadcast
2: live here at Madison Avenue.
0: And it also made Wells a very famous man.
2: Well, another major event happened in in the early 30s here, which is essentially a home, like a center of radio broadcasting in New York. Right, because we were just over at CBS for War of the Worlds, but back over
0: at RCA, they were starting to consolidate all those studios that had been scattered over over, Midtown Mm -hmm. into one new building. In 1933, the RCA building was completed and opened. That's today's GE building, or 30 Rock, this Mm -hmm. sort of centerpiece of Rockefeller Center, we have an entire podcast on this, which I encourage you to listen to. But I
2: should add, just sort of in the context of the show, that the RCA building had 28 studios in it. And those were radio studios. Some Um, of these even had space for studio audiences. 1,200 miles of wire. Studio 8H was considered the largest studio in the world built up to that time hopefully we've made it clear that ready was firmly established in american life here by the by the late 1930s but there are two things on the horizon that are going to change the picture entirely one of them will basically rewrite the rules of everything that we've been talking about everything the other thing will also be very important but it has a little t- tragic tone here now we haven't mentioned Armstrong, Edwin right. Armstrong, in a little Armstrong. while. So he is an older gentleman now, but he's still experimenting with these other ways of manipulating electromagnetic waves and trying to do wireless communication. And he was still on quite good terms with Sarnoff. And what's interesting is he was experimenting not in the milieu of AM radio, but not with amplitudes, but like in actually increasing and decreasing the frequency of the, the waves, which of course we know today as FM radio. He experimented with this form as early as 1928 up at Columbia University, but he gave the very first demonstration of this FM radio concept in 1935 in a special laboratory on the 85th floor of the Empire State Building. And why was this so important? Why was FM seen as a technological advance over AM? It was superior in sound in Every single way. Um, By the way, the Empire State Building had a gigantic antenna um, that sent out waves to receivers that were placed over 80 miles away. So you had so many benefits, so many pluses over Mm -hmm. AM radio. I mean, it's clear that once both of these were sat side by side that everyone would choose FM radio, except that RCA and the other companies here had invested millions of dollars in AM radio. Mm. And now, and produced millions of radio
0: receivers which were only capable of picking up the AM radio band.
2: But then RCA was further distracted by a second major invention here. And they made the announcement at the World's Fair of 1939. It was out in Flushing Meadows, Queens. Uh, Sarnoff made an announcement there that, that they had a new invention that would unite audio with a video radio signal and create what today we would know as the television set. So that between that and pouring resources into their already existing AM stations, they didn't want to hear about this FM station. Mm-hmm. So despite the once warm relationship between Armstrong and Sarnoff, the company's Many All these companies rose to squelch the interest in the technology. He did end up funding the creation of an FM station himself, building the first broadcaster in New Jersey in 1937. By 1942, there were about 50,000 FM receivers in New York. It was kind of a niche product by mm-hmm. this time, which, of course, as we know, it should have been much bigger because it really is a superior sound.
0: And Sarnoff would come back to Armstrong and offer him a million dollars to use that same technology. And Armstrong at that point, seeing how valuable this was, said, no, you have to license it just like anybody else has to license it. And that would start a giant feud between these two that would span decades
2: and ultimately lead to some tragedy. RC blocked or delayed the growth of FM until it appeared that FM would be the preferable option. And then they managed to win a patent for the FM radio. So Armstrong was sort of left out in the cold here. He went on a downward spiral in his life. I mean, he believed that F.M. would never see the light of day. Became a very bitter, violent man in his later years. One day, he attacked his wife with a poker, and she left him, um, which left him even more distraught. On January 31st, 1954, a completely defeated, completely depressed gentleman in his apartment, he removed the air conditioner from the window and from the 13th floor jumped to his death from the apartment building.
0: One part of this tragedy is that Armstrong died thinking that he and FM were a failure.
2: Of course, today, radio in the United States is mostly ruled by um, FM signals. And a lot of these AM stations that we talked about do have FM counterparts, um, as well as TV counterparts, of course. And WABC and WCBS are still
0: very powerful stations operating on the AM band in New York.
2: So I believe we're going to leave the story from there because we could, of course, keep talking into modern eras. Get to Howard <laughs> Stern. We haven't even mentioned Howard Stern, but we're not going to. We're, we're, we're going to leave the story there and pick it up again at another time. But we hope that you have enjoyed this little journey into the past, into the golden era of radio broadcasting and the creations of the medium itself. And you know,
0: Greg, we do occasionally dedicate a show
2: to somebody or yes, something. Mm-hmm.
0: Of all the shows, I think it would be appropriate to dedicate this one to all of the women and the men, the radio pioneers, who not only established radio, but in a, in a funny roundabout way, even made this very podcast possible. I mean, the
2: fact that we're sitting here with microphones, you're broadcasting a signal out to the world, the the medium, that the way it's being done might be very different, mm. but we're working in the same fine tradition as all these people. So I, in fact am honored to have been able to record this show and record it with you, Tom. And oh, as- heavens. I didn't know it was going <laughs> there. But I'm honored to have recorded it with you too, Greg. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for our pictures of some of the personalities and places that we have mentioned on the show. I will put a link to where you can actually listen to some of the old radio shows. And I hope that you've enjoyed some of the radio Clips that I have included in the show. They're all public domain shows. I will link to a resource where you can listen to hundreds of hours <laughs> of 1930s. Some baby Snooks, some, some Fleischmann yeast hour.
0: Become a Friend on Facebook. The subject of this podcast was actually chosen by our friends on Facebook because Greg put up a survey Asking what our next podcast should be about. And so. this
2: one with flying colors. So we will we will we will poll you again for future topics. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.